0: Hello there.
1: Hey Tune, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Is that the that correct pronunciation of your first name? Uh it's
0: actually Tone. That's okay. Tone, oh,
1: there we go. There we go. Um Yeah, how are things?
0: Th- good? Yeah, things are good. Things are always an adventure.
1: Good, good. Um yeah, I just started reading that article you sent over. I'm gonna post it in the Nest for everybody else uh, to uh to read. Um and then, sorry, there's just another speaker that had requested here um, that I'm trying to let in. But anybody else that uh, that wants to speak, just send a request and I'll, I'll get you in. Um, so, Tone, do you want to give uh, maybe just a quick summary? You, you know, you and I had a bit of an, a relatively exhaustive discussion on what you wanted to talk about um, on, on the phone kind of prior to this, but just... Um, sort of what you're doing in the policy space and, and where you see there are kind of gaps in in how municipalities and, and other levels of government are dealing with things right now and, and how we could be doing a better job. Um, I was very intrigued by, by some of the points you're making and it's just kind of a general conversation I'd like to have and I think a lot of other people on Twitter would, would uh, like to hear and contribute to. Yeah,
0: sure. So, you know, for me, I guess the challenge is that, you know, when you go to build something in the city, um, if it's if it's privately built, uh, private landowner developer, you know, realist, you know, you're building real estate, you mean, obviously you have to follow building codes and planning and so forth, but you can kind of do what you want. Um, you know, you can make it as, as beautiful or not, you can make it as functional or not as you want to, and you suffer the slings and arrows and, you know, the misery of, you know, building something that's really poor, expensive to maintain, inefficient, you know, it's horrible and awful and ugly and nobody wants to, you know, buy an apartment in the condo or nobody wants to live there because it's terrible and you're kind of stuck with that because it's your building and you made that decision but when it comes to things in the public realm um, it's our tax dollars it's our money being spent it's our tax dollars that's being spent whether it's provincial um, municipal or federal and when I think about cities you know 80% of Canadians live in a city and so where municipal governance really affects us, um, I know Sean McAuliffe has talked about this a bunch of times, but you know, it's, it's what we build in a city really affects us. Um, so when we're building a transit system, we're building a park, uh, a bike lane, a community center, community, you know, a community space, um, a sports facility, a library, we're building these things. It's our tax dollars that are going into uh, making these things. And when they're not as good as they could be, um it's kind of a waste you know it's not like you know if you're i don't know you buy some some fruit and you go to make a fruit salad and it doesn't quite turn out and it's kind of gross well you kind of toss it and you're kind of like done with it but when you make a building you're stuck with it forever um you're stuck with it for generations and so if it's poorly built it's poorly maintained it's not well executed if it doesn't do the best job it possibly can it's it, you're stuck with it, and we're stuck with it, and we have to live with it um, for for decades, for generations, and and so we need to do a better job of making those things. And when we think about our cities, our cities are becoming increasingly denser places. Uh, there's more people. Like Ottawa saw its population go up almost ten percent last year. Um, we're we're building ever more dense cities that need high quality public space. And that public space is essential to our way of, our way of living, our well-being. We need things like uh, public washrooms at every transit station. The fact that we have to fight for that is, is ludicrous. Um, you know, when we build a park, we build splash pads for kids to cool off in the summer and for adults to cool off in the summer. And we build that and we put in the most hideous, horrible, precast concrete little box to put all the pump equipment in and it's all potable water. Well, why don't we make that box a little bit bigger, make it nicer, put in a public washroom, add a drinking fountain, you know, make it something that's a little bit nicer and, and make it something that's more beautiful. Why don't we make those things? And we lose that opportunity. And, and so that's the procurement piece and that's the leadership that we need in our cities. We need a, a design leadership to really wanna make a better space and see the value and see the potential and then when it comes to how we go about creating those spaces, it's really about creating equity. Um, you know, if, if you, it was one of the other articles I wrote, if if we limited, like imagine if we limited, you know, the kind of music we could listen to uh, or the kind of music that was published to only artists who had ever re- already released an album. Well, we'd never hear new music. And that's what we do with architecture. Um, you know, we read. We, we build buildings, we award projects to firms who have only ever done similar projects before. So if you're a new firm, if you're a new business, you just started your business, uh, even if you've got lots of experience, you can't get a job. And so we, we cut off who can do that work. And then when we hire people to do that work, we make it so difficult for them to do a good job. We not only micromanage the outcomes, um, but we micromanage the process to the point where it's really hard for that person to do a really, really stunningly good job. And so the result is kind of mediocre. And then we make it so difficult to pay them and pay them a decent wage that the only way that they can often survive is by working underpaid time, unpaid time, or not paying their staff a fair living wage. And so that whole process is really frustrating. And and again, if it was private industry, you'd go, okay, well, that's too bad. And you move on, you get a different client. And you choose to do that, but this is our tax dollars, and and it's it's frustrating to see that happen time and again.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, now that I've heard you describe it, it is it is you know like as a as a taxpayer, something that it, that I would find concerning. So, I guess the 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 question, like you know, you 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 you've diagnosed the problem exceptionally well. Like, what what would you suspect are the primary causes that got us here and And then maybe we can address sort of like solutions thereafter. But like a lot of people allude to it being kind of like cronyism or whatever that that, that is like, is the system designed in that way? And like, and and are there any models that are, that are working well? Like, I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Europe and like there, in some, some areas there are exceptional public spaces. And, and even in the, in the U S by comparison, like I, I would agree, like, there's an, an obvious identifiable problem in Canada. Um, how, how did we arrive at the, all of the problems that you're describing? like it, why does this issue exist?
0: Um, so I think it's a little bit it's a little bit cultural, it's a little bit historical. Um, you know when we think about some of the incredible spaces and, and you know I'm sure you know you and a lot of your listeners in, in Toronto, um, you know things like the uh, Ontario Place, Ed Zeidler would never have gotten that job uh, today. He would never have won that job. Uh, the Science Center, Moriama's office, would have never won that job today if they were competing for it. Um, it was both of those buildings were buildings that were built at a time, in a place, in a culture where the design was just expected to be good, and the the you know the architects were hired to do good work, and they were expected to do good work, and they did it, and everybody agreed that whatever you were paying for it was worth what you were paying for and you were hiring based on talent. And I don't know exactly when it happened, but you know, sometime in the seventies, in the eighties, we started getting away from wanting to focus on, on excellence, on talent uh, and started um, really focusing on cost. And we started saying, well, you know, whatever we do, it has to be good value for the taxpayer. And that good value became uh, price-based. And so as things became price-based, people started comparing things and limiting things. And then somewhere along the way the lawyers got involved and started putting in contract conditions and contract clauses that are probably fine if you're buying toilet paper in bulk. But when you're buying toilet paper in bulk and you're saying, I wanna buy you know a million rolls of toilet paper, so I want a discount on it. that's That's fine, I suppose, if you're a toilet paper manufacturer. But when you're buying professional architectural services you don't get a bulk discount because you know the fee is over a hundred thousand dollars you don't get a bulk discount um because they pay your bill on time that's not how this industry works and so you turn away from that kind of um professionalism to bean counting and, and nickel and diming everything to a process that's really sort of quite miserable and the problem is that there are really good places that this can be done, and you brought up Europe as an example. And and one of those uh, conditions is one of the things that makes this a success is when you have um, really good public policy. And what we see in Europe um, is that most European countries um, have an architecture policy, and that policy is is it uses architecture basically to describe the overall. Um, the overall built environment so it's it's buildings it's landscapes it's it's parks it's sort of everything that we're building in the built environment we just call it architecture and so they have these policies that address um like social well-being and so you have to you have to you, you don't have to but you follow the process of trying to create good things in the public interest to create a good building or a good place um, because it's good for community and social well-being and um and in places like australia that policy is also linked to reconciliation uh, with Indigenous people. And we don't have that here. We're focused on sort of the, the cash and the value and the ROI and seeing that only in monetary terms, not in terms of social value. And so I think one of the places we need to change this is having better policy in how we plan and design things. It's not about controls. It's not about building codes. It's about a policy lens through which we make decisions. So if you have something like an official plan about land use planning and you say, okay, well in an official plan, we want greater density within our urban environment. Okay, great, but how do we get there? Well, then let's look at the other policies that affect what and where we build that make it either difficult or that we can use to incentivize the land use policy piece and whether that's things like, you know, bearing overhead hydro lines. Uh, incentivizing things through financial incentives for development charges, um, you know, supporting mass timber construction. Um, what are the other things that we can do through other policies and other lenses to create that bigger policy objective? And those pieces have to be connected, but currently they're not. We also don't have the design leadership within cities, within structures, to champion what really good design is. Not to design it themselves, um, but to to champion design excellence. When we do have architects in positions of leadership within cities or colleges or universities, it's more as a project manager. Um, and so they're good at managing projects, but they're not there to champion design leadership So, and, and why design matters. And you need that kind of leadership voice to be sitting at a council table, just like you have a city planner, a chief planner, a chief city manager advising council on decisions that they're making you need that person to also be at the table advising on design.
1: In in your experience, is, is it like like what percentage of municipalities even have that? Like, does does nobody have a an architect or chief architect, or are they just not they're not doing the role in the manner that you that you are describing? Like, because I think some municipalities do have like chief architects.
0: Yeah, there's probably a, there's probably some. Um, the challenge is, of course, of how much they're empowered to to do that work. Um, Edmonton is the shining example in Canada right now. Uh, Edmonton's city architect is there as a champion for procurement, as a champion for design excellence and design quality. Every great architect in Canada today is working in Edmonton. Uh, firms that do spectacular, stunning, unheard of, beautiful public architecture, whose offices are in Toronto do work in Edmonton and they do more work in Edmonton more often than they do in Toronto because they can't get work in Toronto because they can't meet an RFP requirement in Toronto uh, but they can do that work in Edmonton and they're doing that stunning beautiful work on budget for better quality for better results and they're building these things because it's what people want uh, I re- learned recently that Edmonton I think they I think it's the first municipal velodrome in Canada in North America so an indoor velodrome for a municipality municipally funded municipally built uh, to race bicycles and train for bicycles and it's paired with an aquatic center and they've done that specifically so that they can um, encourage people to train for triathlons and this is municipal infrastructure. This isn't like a P3. This isn't like, um, you know, some privately built space that you have to join to be a member. This is just a public rec center, rec facility. And, and that they're doing that and they're, they're building these stunning spaces and they're incredible. They've, they've just committed to spending $2 billion in the next four years on public infrastructure like libraries and community centers. And to have that kind of will to invest in public buildings is absolutely amazing and that's because they've been championed by um, a city architect.
1: I think the part that's especially funny and like almost like insulting in, in the Ontario piece is like that our governments are gathering so much money from the collection of development charges and haven't necessarily been even when well, a lot of cases haven't been using the funds at all but I, I, and clearly I think the, the average public uh, or member of the public's perspective, or voter, <laughs> or taxpayer's perspective is that if, if and when they are using them, they're not using them exceptionally well. Like, how? Where did policy break to the point where they can have gather all of this money through development charges, not allocate it properly based on what you're telling me, and and not be like held accountable for that? And and is there like is there anything that we as taxpayers, members of the community, etc., can do other than complain about how expensive development charges are on Twitter, um, <laughs> which you know which I love to do and I will do I yep. promise forever. Um, you know, is there anything that that we can do as members of the public to to solve this problem? Like, and I know there was that new um, economic research. I just posted a couple of uh, charts from it. I'll actually put them in the nest too, um, as, along with the link for the article that you just wrote, but uh, or that you were featured in. Um but that you know like something like thirty percent of ontario the cost structure of Ontario of houses in ontario comes from um from from fees that go to the government like shouldn't we be expecting them to to be to to do things the right way like you're describing i guess and and how and how can we how can we uh you know kind of force them to i
0: guess we absolutely can and and i mean you've it's it's a it's a hugely complex issue because how do you get more of these things built. We have to agitate politically. Um, we have to get our, our mayor. Um, I mean, I've, I've put this challenge out a couple of times now and, and challenged local politicians in Ottawa to say which one of our local politicians is gonna stand up and do what Steve Mandel did when he was mayor of Edmonton in 2005 and say, we're done with crap, we're done. And then that becomes the rallying cry to effect change. I have yet to hear any politician in Ottawa, Toronto, Sudbury, London, any politician stand up and say, we're done with crap. What we're building is crap and we need to go better. And I have heard nobody stand up and say that. So we need to have someone who has the courage to be willing to do that. But we also need to have the courage to elect good politicians. Um, You know, I don't know all the names of all the different people who are running in, in Toronto, but when you have year after year after year of austerity budgets and you know, honestly, milk-a-toast approaches to building social infrastructure when the biggest thing you can do is champion, you know, pothole fixing. Um, if that's the best thing that you can do as a, as a city, then if that's all you can champion as a mayor, you're not going to get much. There was a, a really fantastic, um, I think it's posted on TO, you know, someone last fall for Nuit Blanche Did these like art pieces where they posted like a broken, you know, a little sign next to like a broken water fountain and said it was a John Tory gift of the artist to the city of Toronto? You know, when we're allowing billions of dollars of assets in in our city to crumble and to fall apart, we're destroying the goodwill we have within our population to have a beautiful place, and and we have to reach a point as a populace where we get angry enough about what's around us to start demanding change and and that that anger that resentment for the quality of the space we live in has to be channeled to politicians and those politicians have to react um you know i've had probably half a dozen politicians now tell me that and not just in ottawa but they tell me that they're there to rubber stamp what staff tells them to do and they don't They can't control what staff are doing, and if they ask for something to be different, staff say no and refuse to do it. So we have to have not only a bureaucracy that is willing to affect change, and we need to have politicians who are willing to insist on that change. We found out just a little while ago that the things we're looking for for procurement reform in Ottawa were actually voted on, approved, and passed by Ottawa City Council in 2004. And then nothing was done. It fell off the radar and radar and nobody did anything. So we're not asking for something new. We're just asking for an action from twenty years ago to be put back on the table.
1: It's interesting. Like to me, you know, when you're talking about like billions of dollars of, of city infrastructure crumbling, you know, like I think one of the things in Toronto, I and I could be wrong, like maybe Maybe somebody in the audience or, or any of the other speakers want to chime in who are more familiar with it. But I think there's like a very quantifiable difference between Toronto before COVID and Toronto present day. And there's like a, like, I don't know, it, it just, it does seem like, you know, the, the, a lot of the things that you're describing probably have taken place. Like a lot of these social infrastructure pieces have have kind of, um, I don't know, left us. Uh, on the back burner or not funded properly or not taken care of, even if they are, even if the proper funding is available. Um, and it, it almost seems like it evolved into like a sense of like, I don't want to say like a lack of pride or like a lack of like care or respect among like the populace. And it almost like pay, like Jane Jacobs talks a lot mm-hmm. about like stuff like this, you, you know, like sidewalks as an example, like as like gathering places and safety mechanisms for like people in cities. And it almost has evolved into like this thing where it, it's it become like a bit of a mechanism for like I don't I don't want to use the words like social unrest, but like things things just like don't feel the way that they they did or ought to in in cities as almost as a result of this or in in conjunction with it. Like it, it is fascinating actually to to see the practical application of what
0: you're describing in a place like Toronto. It is, and and, and it's incredible to see that, and then to realize what the impact of those changes are and how you know, what was incredible has been sort of whittled away. And every time a little piece gets nibbled away, we say, okay, um, well, I guess a little bit. And then, you know, the next year, a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And before you know it, what you started with, that was incredible is gone. Um, and you know, I saw Sean McAuliffe did a sort of wandered around the science center the other day and posted pictures of it. It's not, you know, that didn't happen overnight. That was decades in the making. I said this about 24 Sussex. Um, it's not a $30 million repair problem. It's 30 years of deferred $1 million annual maintenance projects. Um, and, that's, and that's the problem is that these things become, you know, you put aside money to do a new roof, you need $3 million. So you put aside a little bit of money every year. And then somebody comes along and says, well, you got $2.5 million sitting here you're not using. We're going to take that and do something else with it. And suddenly your reserve fund for your roof is gone and then your roof leaks. Um, and it's, it's a choice about how we choose to fund these things. Um, it, it's a choice that we make, and, and we make it by who we vote for. And if only, you know, 35% of us show up to vote, well, then how, what right do we have to complain? Um, you know, decisions are being made by the politicians on stuff that really affects us and affects our day-to-day lives. Um, you know, there was a... There's twenty-eight library branches in Ottawa and they have a combined repair budget of six hundred thousand dollars a year. Like, how do you repair and maintain, you know, libraries on a twenty thousand dollar annual budget for maintenance? Like that's one bathroom. That's one bathroom that has to be fixed. And and when you fix one bathroom and don't fix the one next to it, and it breaks and then causes damage to the existing crappy bathroom and the new one you just fixed, you now have double the repair bill. And it's that kind of parsimonious failure to think big that really harms us. And we need to think bigger and think bolder. And, and we don't do that when it's the whole process is whittled down to who's the cheapest architect, who's the cheapest engineer. Um, you know, when you look at highways, um, and I, I hate to talk about parking all the time, but when you look at highways, when they build a new highway and, you know, pave a new road, pave a new highway, it doesn't open up with potholes in the first year. It takes a really long time because when they build the highway, they know that they're gonna build it properly and they don't wanna have to come back every year and fix more and more potholes. So why is it that our municipal roads, were okay building them really cheap so they fill it with potholes in the first spring and then we come back and patch those and the next year patch it again and the next year patch it again. It's because we're choosing to build it cheaply to begin with. We're choosing to design it cheaply to begin with. And those are decisions that we're making On a daily basis, and we choose to do that over and over, and we need to stop doing that and start making better decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting too, uh, and I'll get to Daryl's question here after. But um, you know, like in the contracting space, there's a saying: um, "Don't spend uh, good money after bad." Right? Like, you you know, you're gonna if you if you cheap out, you're likely gonna have to go and put a more expensive repair Mm -hmm. in down the road. Like it. It, there's like a lack of thoughtfulness, I think, in a lot of these things um, where they're it's almost like a manufactured obsolescence where you know that that they they you know they're building the car to have the maintenance, right um, rather than building something that is timeless, that is durable, that and so it, it's a shame that what you're describing takes place doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, Daryl, uh, you got your hand up here. did you want to jump in and then we'll get to Justice Queen?
2: Um, just as uh, he was talking, I, I kept thinking about the 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 process that that they go through uh, to to procure the the trades and the excuse me and the materials. Sorry, um, and and just like when I hear these budgets, like I've been in the business for a long time. When I hear the budgets and then when I hear the spending and the overspending and the the timelines, I just can't help. To think that if they could control a portion of that there'd be a lot of money left over you know to do like a curved window or something or maybe to use a better architect but like i think that the waste the wasted money on some of these projects is like mm-hmm. in the hundreds of millions um i, I anyways that's just what kind of came to mind like i've heard some of these overages and i'm like how is that even possible like where did that money really go Because it couldn't have gone to just construction.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, the cost of construction goes up and up and up and up. But it's also about how things are written, what the expectations are. Um, You know, I think about... Well, and
2: there's just these layers. There's layers in the middle that, Mm -hmm. like, may not be necessary that take up a lot of dollars.
0: Yep. I I mean, the prime culprit for that is public-private partnerships um you know you, you you have to hire somebody when you do a, a a p3 for like a hospital or an arena or something like that you have to hire a consultant to design it figure out what everybody wants to design it then you throw over the fence to hire another consultant to design it again that's twice the effort that takes twice as long um and that's insane and then you build in all these risk challenges and specifications for things that might not exist but you hold somebody's feet to the fire with a, and punish them with a big stick um, if they so much as breathe out of line. And and that's where the cost comes. That's where a huge part of the cost comes from. Because you're choosing a contracting method that isn't, isn't fair. It isn't fair and in, inequitable in the public. And because you reach a scale of some of these things, especially when you get into big transit projects and stuff, you reach a scale where there isn't any competition. You know, we've effectively, in Ontario, we've effectively sole-sourced, hospital design and construction uh over the last 25 years 78 percent of all hospitals in ontario have been built by two firms who have used basically eight, eight architects yeah and that doesn't
2: drive the prices down
0: no that, that ensures the is
2: that the costs are yeah would like double
0: yeah and it's so expensive to try to get into that field um you know if you if if you, if you pursue like a project like a hospital, a P3, it'll cost a firm a um, million and a half to $3 million just to respond to the RFP. And so the firm loses the job. Well, they're out $3 bucks. So where do they make up that revenue? Well, they make it up on winning the next job and finding the loophole and nailing the, the public with every extra. And that's not in the public interest. And we could do a better job if we rethought that hiring process.
1: Um, I'll get you a... Uh... I'm curious to know what, like, what rethinking that looks like, but I want to get to some of these other questions here. So, um, Justice, do you want to jump in?
3: Um, Yeah. So, I just had a few comments um, based what was, on what was said earlier, like, just in regards to Edmonton, because, I mean, I'm originally from Edmonton, and I have a very high opinion of what they've done with housing, but I just have found um, everything that they've done in terms of years of consultations with the public, engaging people. I mean, in, in Toronto, you know, we have a lot of problems with NIMBYism, and there's a particular way that they engage people and there's a particular way that they um, do public consultations. But one of the things that Edmonton decided to do was actually have a more equitable public consultation and I know not everybody likes that word but they did a remarkable job of actually engaging different communities, different age groups Mm -hmm. and bringing them to the table to actually have a voice which I don't find Toronto does. I mean more recently you do see like younger people at consultations because of some of the work that organizations like More Neighbours has done Um, but just to actually engage different people in the process so it's not just a loud minority that are dictating you know what gets built and where it gets built and they did have a remarkable remarkable mayor for a number of years who is the reason why they had so many changes that happened and it was inspiring for them Um, and he did reform zoning like there were those decisions that were made and um, they did so though with um, public buy-in which I find interesting in Toronto like there isn't really that public buy-in and there's almost like an apathy out there of who cares like in terms of the mayor and stuff like that like people are not showing up to vote like there's a lot of problems um and then regarding development fees i i just think that we are a city that has been spoiled on development fees and this belief that growth pays for growth and it simply is not working if you look at the developer um fees and and where it goes i mean we're we were in the middle of a you know a pandemic and a public health crisis and a housing crisis and zero dollars went to shelters and zero dollars went to public health and that just demonstrates a lot like what is happening with these development fees i mean there's over two billion that is sitting in a reserve fund and we are suffering from like a decade of austerity of not you know um doing things properly with the ttc with public infrastructure and all of these things and there's just not a desire there and and I would say, like, maybe even a misspending of the money that is coming in. Um, And then regarding your point in terms of Toronto, like, you know, pre-pandemic to now, and um, I actually, like, moved out of Toronto for two years during the pandemic and then came back after living in Toronto for over a decade, like, in the city, like, downtown. And it has gone downhill. You know, we have a leadership that actually isn't really caring about what is going on. You go on the TTC, it has become a shelter. Um, You know, most homeless people will tell you like, you know, if you tell them like, you know, do you want to go to a shelter? I can take a look for you if you want to see where an opening is. A lot of them will cite violence as the reason why they don't want to go to a shelter. And then Mm you get CTC into a shelter and expect people to feel safe. People are not trained for that. Like, they're not trained to see that, to be subject to that. You know, there's little kids on the TTC. It's it's disturbing sometimes. You know, you see a, a family with young kids and all of a sudden someone's in there and they're, like, swearing or they're high on drugs. And I, I have a lot of compassion for these people that are vulnerable that are going through that. But that is not what the... Um, you know, TTC is for, mm-hmm. um, so we just kind of lack this compassion. And I would say the other part that really gets me is that, you know, uh, Toronto is a very progressive city. It votes very progressively. And it, there's almost like this hypocrisy within progressive cities, even in the U S where you're seeing them not handling um, social issues in appropriate manners and actually helping people. It's almost like, you know, we're that city that will say, Oh, you can't call a person homeless. You have to call them unhoused, but our policies Are not reflective to help vulnerable people.
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, you know the examples we have of Finland, um, for example, in tackling housing first. And you know, there's we don't have to go to Finland to look for this. There's examples in Toronto. um, LGA Partners Architects did this spectacular building for, I think it was at risk, unhoused. teens i think youth it was it was certainly for youth um and it was a spectacular project that helped bring um you know at-risk teens who were and, and youths who were on the street um into into housing and got them stable and and got them off the street and that kind of housing first model is so critical um but it costs money to do that right it costs money to build housing and and push back against people saying you know the sort of I don't want to just say the nimbyism, but to push back against people saying, like, why are we doing this? You know, these people should just, you know, grow up, get a job, whatever. That sort of um, resistance to socialness um, and that resistance to compassion. And when you you push back on it, you have to see that there's value in doing that because it's better for society and it's better for for people. And it's better economically um, in the long term to help people this way. And so we have to see a value in doing that. But, you know, that kind of result doesn't you can't go to a ribbon cutting and serve some butter tarts and, uh, and 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 do that in two years before you get reelected. These are things that take years and years and years to see the payback from. and And no one's no one wants to do that because the political cycle is so short. And that's where some of this stuff, unfortunately, I think should be depoliticized, you know, council shouldn't have a say over some of these things we should have a, a broader you know commitment to say we're going to spend you know 200 million dollars a year in ottawa on uh, public housing we're just going to commit that and we're going to do it for the next 10 years and it's you know untouchable it's in the budget it's there you know it's as sacrosanct as you know i hate to say it but the police budget like heaven forbid you try to take funding away from the police department um but you know that money is just there and it's just guaranteed that every year we're going to spend that kind of money on things. And once we do that and we have that vision and we have that goal, we can actually start to see a return on it. And then we can look back in 10 years and say, look, for the last 10 years we've spent this kind of money every year on housing first. And here's the result. Uh, we've got fewer people on the street. We've solved these issues. You know, tourism is booming. Economy is growing and it's a result of taking care of people.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's interesting too. Like when you know when we talk about all like all of these problems happening as a result of, uh, you know, be it funding or mismanagement or whatever, like they they compound as well, right? And it, it's interesting in the context of like the workplace reopening to me in Toronto. I I was at a forum um, and a, you know the the final panel was a bunch of office landlords speaking and. Um a comment really stuck out to me, and they all agreed on it after the comment was made. Um, and these are again all all landlords like of of major office buildings, and they had said, you know in in Toronto and Vancouver, um, it, it's not worth or sorry, it's not it's 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 worth um thinking about the issue of public safety as a um as a headwind to reopening of the office space because they are talking about how we're going to get past 50% of pre COVID office occupancy, you know, in a, in in a, in a market where employment's very tight and employees very much drive the decision-making process because, uh, they're the ones that are, that are in there's, there's scarce right now. So they, they kind of have the bargaining power against employers to decide whether or not we have a hybrid workplace or a full reopening of the office. But these issues with, you know, um, public safety in Vancouver and 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 now especially on the TTC and and in Toronto um it, it it's a real headwind against like especially people living in urban areas um wanting to to go to the financial district to go to the financial core and you see this a lot in in the US as well um you know certain US cities where there's sort of like maybe in the financial core high police presence Um, And and then the problems seem to kind of be outside of that central business district. But for a city like Toronto, it's growing so rapidly attracting world like top talent from all over the world. It's just a really strange position to be in where that, that is a, you know, within the, within the scope of problems that people qualified people um, consider a challenge when trying to get back to kind of, you know, an office world that was similar, somewhat similar to what what we saw before COVID. So I thought that was pretty fascinating discussion. Um, Adam, did you want to jump in here? Do you have a question?
4: Yeah, I want to just uh, talk to a few of these points and then I have a question for Tune as well. Um, I think that we're all living and operating from a scarcity mindset. And um, when these projects to beautify come along, Uh, huge mistakes are Mm -hmm. made um, over overpaying over budget because we're all just so desperate to have beautiful things and like you guys were saying the money is there the question is do we allow that money to be accessible over a longer period of time instead of just having these small sprints of design that cause huge problems like I can think of a few problems like in San Francisco when they tried to do the trash can revival or whatever, and it was totally unfunctional and they way overpaid for it. And everyone was super pissed off and that leaves a sour Mm -hmm. taste in everyone's mouth. Right. And personally, I've owned a business where I was bidding on government contracts and we've been talking about, the cost inflation when you win the contract and i think what is often misunderstood or not appreciated is the inflation to costs when you're going to bid on contracts and for me the process was so complicated Mm -hmm. it took so much time and it was so risky to try to win a large project you're trying to shift your business and your your next year, two years around, you're doing all this complicated paperwork. So much so that when I started bidding on these projects, there was third party agencies reaching out to me and offering to do all that for me if I paid them a commission. Mm-hmm. And I think that is happening a lot in these areas where people are bidding on government contracts and that adds to the costs. It, it, it has to be because as a business owner, not only do you want to win that, that contract, but if you spend all this time and you make one mistake, they're going to throw out your mm-hmm. bid for any number of reasons, right? So that's when it comes to functionality, you know, um, the things that we do every single day, energy efficient projects. Um, but I think that when it comes to beautifying our city, our communities, um, we do need people who are going to be bold and who are willing to lose their power in office. Um, I can think of one example that's super famous that that uh, Toon probably knows a lot about, which was the Sydney Opera mm-hmm. House. Um, there's actually a name for what happened there. A lot of uh, academics have been studying it over the years. It's called uh, strategic misrepresentation. Essentially, it's when a politician or a visionary wants something to happen, they purposely say that a project is going to be way under budget. And they do that so that they get the public support to go ahead with the project. Now, the Sydney Opera House, I think it started off at like a $3 billion or £3 million Mm -hmm. um, total project cost. It ended up inflating to 10 years late, and it was like, 29 times the cost and now it's one of the marquee buildings in the Mm -hmm. world right like everyone knows sydney for that opera house funny enough it's actually not suitable for operas because it was so poorly designed uh tune can probably speak to that but we need those kinds of people and i think what what dan and and justice and tune were saying was that the money's there the question is do we just make this you know a gimmick where we kind of make it seem like we care about beautifying things. But at the end of the day, um, we're allowing two or three people to design things that are non-functional just because it's, uh, it's going to make headlines. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious what Tuna has, has to say about the inflation of costs and and how beautifying projects and functional projects might have different risk profiles based off of Um, how they're funded and how they're viewed by the public.
0: So the challenge of budgets is, is always huge because you're trying to, you know, you're trying to predict what, you know, know, somebody hires me today for construction for a project. that's going to go into construction in two years. And this is our budget. I'm trying to predict what is going to happen to supply chains and construction costs two years out. I got no clue. Right. And, And I mean, you can, you can guess, but it's, it's, you know, an educated guest. So it is tough to try to do that. But that's where there has to be a better understanding of, you know, of shared risk. Um, How do you approach a design for something? And how do you budget appropriately? Um, You know, if if the city of Toronto says to me, hey, we're going to build a, you know, beautiful state of the art, stunning library, uh, but we've got a budget of $120 a square foot. Um, I can turn to them and say, well, you can have the stunning and beautiful state of the art, incredible library, or you can have something for $120 a square foot, but you can't have both. Um, which one do you want? Which one matters to you more? Is it the overall budget cap uh, that matters of, you know, a 10,000 square foot library at 120 bucks a square foot? Is that what matters to you the most? And that's your absolute budget cap. Cause then in that case, I'm going to design you a library that fits your budget but it's not going to be as big as you think it is, or it's not going to meet those objectives. Or if you want this thing, like which one do you want? And that's, and that's the tough part that we as a profession have to push back harder on. We have to be more intelligent uh, architects and we have to push back and we have to say to our clients, so your budget's not achievable. Your budget's not realistic. Which one is it that you want? And we have to be educated enough and have the strength of character to push back harder on our clients and say, no, that's not possible to do. Um, and, and then we also need to have uh, clients who are prepared to go to bat. Uh, and this is another example of what works well in Edmonton is they say, we've got a budget to do this thing. This is the thing we want to do. And um, then spend that budget wisely. If, if, if someone trusts me, if a municipality or a client, private client, public, doesn't matter, trust me with their budget, I'm going to spend their budget in the best possible way. Um, You know, there was a project a little while ago for the National Capital Commission, and they wanted this, you know, incredible transformation of a mid-century modernist building, seismic upgrades, curtain wall replacement, stone restoration, complete interiors, all new mechanicals, all new electricals, all new everything. Uh, They wanted to hit the zero carbon goal, complete energy efficiency upgrade, the whole bit. And, you know, a bunch of us bidding on the job asked, well, what's the budget for the project? Well, they wouldn't say well, I don't know if this is realistic to achieve. Like, I think that's a $60, $70 million project, what they want to do. And they ended up having such a terrible RFP that they had to essentially, you know, they couldn't come to an agreement on a bid and they had to then rebid the project and then they disclosed what the budget is. And when you looked at the budget, there was no way to achieve what they're asking for, for the budget they've stated. It's impossible. So it it makes it so that, you know, we as the professionals are forced to have to... be mean to our clients essentially and say no that's not possible because of poor budgeting poor planning and that's the part that's hard to do is you have to push back on this stuff and when you're in an antagonistic uh, rfp process you don't want to give away your trade secrets you don't want to ask the question and say well this isn't possible because then you're not going to get the job so you play the game you go along nicely you bid the job You get the contract and then day one, they say, okay, let's get started. And you say, okay, you know, you can have it good, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, but you only get two, which one is it? And, and that's, and that becomes like, you've won the job, you signed the contract. It's more expensive to fire now. So then you get the extras and then you start building the extras and the extras and the extras and the extras pile up. And that costs us as, as taxpayers, that costs us more money. And that's the part that's frustrating is that there's a better way of doing this and a more transparent way of doing this. And sometimes it could be small projects like design competitions um, that can open the door to more creativity. Um, You know, there's a, there's an apocryphal story about um, a high rise building that had uh, everybody complained because the elevators were too slow and everybody complained and everybody complained year after year after year until they finally got around to saying, okay, fine, we're going to fix the elevators. So they do an RFP and say, Look, everybody complains about the elevators being too slow. So uh, we figure we have to replace the elevator. So please give us a bid. And they got all these bids and they were really high, millions and millions of dollars. And one firm bid like a hundred grand. And so they bring in the low bidder and said, well, how can you do this for a low bid? Like for the bid you've got, that seems impossible. And the firm said, you know what? Give us a job and people won't complain about the elevators anymore. So what did they do? They get the job and they put mirrors up in all the elevator lobbies. So people now had something to stare at. They had something to look at and they stopped complaining about the elevators being slow. So that's like, that's creativity. Somebody had to come up with that idea and think outside the box and be willing to take a risk and do something that wasn't asked for, but was creative and solved the problem, which was people complained the elevators were too slow. So you have to think about how, how, and, but if the, if that was an RFP today, that bid would have been thrown out well you didn't comply with the bid requirements because he didn't provide us new elevators yeah but we solved the problem didn't we and it's not about more money and more fees it's about doing the best thing you possibly can to serve the public interest
1: in in the bidding process isn't it like they like wouldn't they in a lot of cases just throw out the low bid anyway like don't they scrape the top and bottom off i don't i'm not super familiar with the process so maybe you can maybe you can explain that a little bit just to clarify for some of the listeners? Not
0: typically. Um, some RFPs, they'll structure the, the, the financial part and ask people to. Um, they'll, they'll tell, like, it's usually done by a points system. So you'll get, like, you know, 70 points or 80 points of the RFP will be your, you know, your resume, your experience, your, you know, your, your past performance, your approach, your schedule, like that kind of technical stuff. And then the rest of the RFP score will be your fee. And sometimes that's straight up lowest fee gets the most points. Sometimes it's uh, they take all the fees and they give you the median. So um, they total them up. You get the median fee and whoever's closest to the median gets the most points and you get decreasingly fewer points the further out you go, which is fine, except you're trying to hit a dartboard in the dark because you don't know what the median is. So, you know, if you put in, you know, everyone, Puts in five bucks, five bucks, five bucks, five bucks, and you put in 500. Well, you're so far out of the median, you've got no chance. So, the right way to do this is the same way that you do if you were hiring. So, uh, you know, Daniel, if you were hiring um, an agent to work in your office, and you knew that the going rate for an agent in your office was 30 bucks an hour, that's what the going rate to pay somebody in your office was 30 bucks an hour, Um, and you advertised, you would advertise a job and say, you know, successful candidate will be paid, um, you know, in the range of about 30 bucks an hour. And everybody who was interested in the job, who thought that that was a reasonable salary would apply. People who were already making more than that wouldn't apply because it'd be a pay cut, unless you're such a brilliant employer that, you know, they really want to work for you. Um, Or people who aren't qualified for the job aren't going to get interviewed because they're not going to pass the interview um, cut score. So it's clear on what the process is. In in a public tender RFP, they don't do that. It's just whoever's lowest and you're guessing. And that's part of the problem is that we know what a reasonable fee is. But as bidders, you look at the way government writes an RFP and you try to find the holes in the schedule or the holes in the the scope and say, well, okay, I guess if they didn't ask for this, then I'm not going to do it. Um, But I know that they're going to ask for it later. So... I'll be able to get an extra, and so you price the job low, knowing you're going to get an extra later, and that's a really unfair, miserable way to do job to do a business.
1: So, so you're saying like they, they would anticipatorily like leave something out that uh, they know it needs to be done anyway, but because they can like argue, they can literally go to the people and and show them the document and be like, it doesn't say it in this mm-hmm. thing, so you have to pay me. Yeah, it's interesting. And, so, like, how, how do you like that? That's like, it, I don't know. I mean, like, is that just like a moral hazard on the part of the bidder, absolutely. like, or is, like, is that is it a solvable problem? Like, do we just need like less assholes in like the in the bidding process? Well, don't you like, just do you, need.
4: Tone, don't you just need better contracts? Like CCDCs yep. in the private sector protect both parties, depending on what you you select.
0: Yep, absolutely. the The challenge is that in the in like in architecture profession, we'll get a a standard you know standard client architect agreement for for us, will be you know it's a twenty page twenty page contract, twenty pages of general conditions and blah 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 and schedules, and we'll get forty fifty pages of supplementary conditions, that change everything from the definition to you know, compliance with the Construction Act. Uh, The City of Ottawa's contract requires that I turn over my copyright to them. And so they own my copyright to everything. And then every time I want to reuse a detail, I have to go and ask permission. Like, it's insane the stuff that gets piled on. And they go, well, that's, that's what we want. So if you don't like it, don't bid. Well, the problem is that if I want to design libraries, it's not like, you know, uh, you know, Miranda is designing libraries and saying, hey, I'm going to hire a bunch of architects to design me a library. Because the only person who builds libraries is the city. And so if that's the only game in town, uh, if I want to design libraries, then I'd love to, but I can't because I won't sign a contract that's morally corrupt. And, and there's no give and take. This kind of contract is just kind of piled on you and you're forced to accept it. Um, one of the ones that's crept in lately is there's a thing called the right of setoff. So um, let's say we're designing a building, say we're designing a library, and I say to the client, you know, this would be a great spot to put in uh, a vending machine. Put it here in the hallway, there's a spot to put a vending machine, it'd be a great idea. People can buy themselves a snack or drink a bottle of water uh, on their way out. And the client says, nope, there's no budget for that, uh, so we're not going to do it. Okay, great, off they go. Under construction, someone comes along and says, you know, that spot would be a great spot for a vending machine, we should put one in. And the client says, yep, that's a great idea. You know, we should do that. We should have thought of that. Um, so we're going to take the cost of that vending machine, the plug, the modifications to the lighting and everything you need around it. Um, and that's an extra. But gee, we don't really have a budget for it. So we're going to take it off of Tone's fee. Um, because we, as the as the client, get to be the sole decider of whether or not uh, an extra is the fault of the architect. So we've decided this one, we should be the fault of the architect. So they take that off my fee. And... And I can't fight it. I can't complain. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not insured for it. It's not a mistake. It's clearly not a mistake. It's a change of will. But that's a right the client gets to nickel and dime and take that off my invoice. And, and that kind of thing creeps into contracts, because the client is advised by their lawyer that this is a good idea. And it's not fair, but that's the contract. And so you go into those kinds of contracts, hoping that it never comes up and you have to run the risk that it might and you have to have enough cash in the bank to float it or hire a lawyer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like a a really... So, so like... What I know, you're doing a lot of work in the space to try and solve these problems, and I and I want to be mindful of everybody's time. It's actually hilarious because I can see when the Leafs game is in between periods because the like viewership goes up by like fifty or sixty people. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, um, I, I you know I, I'm curious to kind of like wrap up the whole discussion. What are some some solutions here? Like, how do we how do we fix these these problems from your perspective? And like for you know you've got a, a, an audience of a lot of people are interested in in real estate and real estate investing. In you know the housing crisis, um, how how do we as individuals like hold our politicians more accountable? Like I don't like any of the things that you're describing. It makes me makes me even angrier than I already am as a taxpayer. But how do we how do we fix these issues? Like what can we do us and 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 the, how does the political system need to change?
0: Well, one of the things that changed in the U.S. was in 1972 they passed the Brooks Act. Um, and I'd love for us to pass that ourselves. And basically what that does is it means that evaluating price is illegal in all federal and state procurement in the U.S. for the last 50 years. You cannot evaluate price. So prices are set, they're established by guidelines and standards, and that's the price. So everybody is selected based on quality. So that's, that's key. That's dead simple to do. Um, and it's already embedded in policy and guidelines and standards. The Federation of Canadian Municipalities has their infrastructure guide on how to hire a consultant, um, and it sits on a shelf. Nobody uses it. So we need our politicians to say, we've had enough. We want better quality. We want better results. We want uh, the people we hire to be paid uh, for them to be able to pay their staff and their employees. We want that kind of equity. We want a broader, diverse group of people designing our buildings and our parks and our landscapes. Um, And so we've had enough, and we're going to reform our procurement process Um, To adopt quality-based selection, that's a that's a simple, easy process. There's documents, there's standards, there's there's guidelines on exactly how to do this, and it's exactly what Edmonton does. And all we have to do is look at Edmonton to see the example. Toronto Community Housing actually did this. They they got away from uh, their old method of doing this, and Toronto Community Housing adopted quality-based selection. I think last November, Um, and they're doing exactly the same thing because they realized the value of building things better starts with hiring better and it's it's fundamental and it's easy to do all it takes is to have the political will to be bold so that's the first step so did you see tch
1: the toronto community housing yeah it's actually funny you mentioned that because i think my brother ended up getting like he's a brand new landscape architect, not brand new now but like he was maybe two years ago and i think he ended up getting a tchd contract because they had had to open Mm -hmm. up i guess like due to this new process to allow, I guess they only, they only had like a set group of people who were able to bid prior and then they opened it up to like people who were junior and they added like three or five more mm-hmm. potential bidders and he was among them. And cause he was brand new, he was always going to have the best price. Right. So, so he was successful, which was interesting. So I've actually seen the practical application of what you're describing. And,
0: and it's, it's right there. Like the tools are there. They've been in place like they're not difficult to do and it actually saves money on the RFP process because you don't need an army of procurement staff writing stuff and evaluating. It's an easier evaluation. It's faster to deliver. Everything about it is just so much better. So that's the key first step is to commit to quality-based selection and, and just adopt it and just do it. The other steps that are, are, are take a bit more time is for organizations like cities like Toronto community housing, Ottawa community housing, colleges universities they need to adopt a chief architect um, and i don't like the term chief architect because i think it's uh, probably have racist origins but you need a city architect you need an architect leader an architect champion and that person needs to be staffed and have the resources to be able to challenge the professionals that are being hired i would love to have and i love this, this is why i do uh, i do a lot of military work because when we do the work we submit our drawings And then we get challenged by their experts and their in-house experts who say is this the best choice is this the best choice of mechanical system is this the best approach to you know gender neutral washrooms is this the best approach to accessibility in the building because they have their own in-house experts and expertise and so we need to have a you know a city architect and you know a place like toronto you're probably going to have a department of many uh, because it's such a big city but you need to have somebody who can champion design and who's willing to go to bat and to take a project and bring it to council for approval and say, this is incredible design, we need to approve this, we need to approve the budget for this. There was a fantastic project um, as a good example of this. Winnipeg just won a Governor General's Award for a public bathroom in a park. Uh, They won a Governor General's Award in architecture and the success of that project was they hired an architect and a landscape architect and they came up with incredible designs and they pushed it to the client. And the client said, this is amazing. We're going to need a bigger budget for this project. We need to get better funding approval for this project. And that client championed it, took it to council, took it to his bosses, and was afraid of getting fired because he was pushing such a good design. And it's an incredible, stunning, beautiful work of architecture that has incredible sustainability metrics. It's accessible, and it's, and it's gorgeous. And it won a Governor General's Award. Um, and, and so we need clients who are prepared to do that. And that comes from that kind of design leadership within a city and an organization backed by good policy. Awesome. Um, I, uh,
1: I think I'm, I'm relatively satisfied with this, this discussion. I mean, I feel like we've chatted about this forever, but we try and keep these things close to an hour. Um, I don't know if uh, Justice or Adam, if you guys have anything else you want to add here. Um, otherwise, I might uh, might just make an effort to wrap wrap it up. Um, Tone, is there anything you wanted to add here um, that we that we didn't get? To? Uh,
0: no, I just I was really excited to be here and be part of this. I've never done a Twitter Spaces before. Um, Justice, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I love your posts, and uh, you know I think it's fantastic. So great to hear a voice and put a at least a a little picture to a face and a name and a voice so really nice to meet you and thanks for having me on daniel and adam nice to also meet you and i see a couple of other familiar faces and names in here so um you know this is really fantastic and thanks for having me
1: yeah no it was a pleasure to have you and um it's interesting like you know usually they're more finance related discussions but um my inbox has just been full of people saying how great of a space it is tonight and um so, you know, maybe we'll have to have you back. Uh, I know we're going to be having some missing middle discussions sometime over the next little bit, um, with like Toronto's um, fourplex approvals today and uh, or starting of that process today. And um, so would love to have you back on as a speaker to contribute to some of those more like architecture and design sure. and, and policy related discussions. So okay. Happy. awesome. Um, OK, yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, and thanks to everybody for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you next Thursday.
0: Thank you. Have a good night. Talk it.